Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. I want to thank our sponsors right up front, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens, University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. You don't have to be a Torontonian to know Young Street. Often boasted as the longest street in the world, it seems to touch the lives of millions. For those who live in this city, Young Street is the main artery that divides east from west. It's the subway line that brings the north to the south every morning and then reverses itself in the afternoon. It's a reference to many of the city's most important sites. Shops, museums, sports venues and schools are all a stone's throw away from Young Street. And yet, it's unknown. Its history is still to be discovered, and today my guest has lifted the veil on a turning point in its past. His name is Daniel Ross. He's an associate professor at the Université du Québec à Montréal, and his book is entitled The Heart of Toronto, Corporate Power, Civic Activism, and the Remaking of Downtown Young Street. It's published by the University of British Columbia Press. Daniel, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you, Patrice. I'm very happy to be there. to yesterday for this episode. What happened on August 15th, 1974? Well, August 15th, 1974 is the rather abrupt end of the Young Street Pedestrian Mall, which was an experiment in closing Toronto's busiest shopping street to cars and opening it up to pedestrians as a new public space. And that took place over four years in the early 1970s. And in the book, I look at three big projects or, or ideas for transforming Young Street, and one of them is the Pedestrian Mall. The others are Rebuilding, incarnated by the Eaton Centre, and the Citizen Campaign Against Sex Work and Sexual Entertainment. The immediate context for the end of the mall is a transit strike, which put a lot of pressure on uh, traffic arteries in Toronto and eventually brought drivers onto the mall, sort of by force majeure, and, uh, and led the city to cancel the experiment. But the significance is really in the larger context of this intervention as sort of a, a grassroots-driven project to reimagine a downtown street as what people called a people place. It seems to me that this experiment said a lot about politics in this city. Reading your book, I'm struck at the lack of vision for this city. Neither City Hall, the business community, or the community at large had a particular notion of what the city should be about. The city government said, okay, let's have a pedestrianization of Young Street, remove the cars, let people shop, cross the street at will, and yet it shut down. Why was there no governing vision? What's your impression of, of this lack of vision, or am I wrong? No, I, I don't think you're wrong. And I think the richness of the period is in the fact that there are competing visions for downtown. So we don't have one dominant project or future that's imagined. We have several. And in my book, I really try and trace how a series of actors who had competing visions and, and many of them based in competing interests tried to shape that urban future and tried to change downtown. I mentioned rebuilding, so that's a, a vision for the future that's driven by corporate actors, by municipal boosters, notably a series of downtown politicians. Uh, the pedestrian mall sort of incarnates the idea of a human-scaled, uh, community-oriented downtown, so downtown for the people was the kind of phrase that was being trafficked at that time. But there were other visions. There was a vision for the future based on the past, so people who looked back to downtown when it was the beating heart, and the heart metaphor is 
present throughout the period of the city, so the first half of the 20th century, when it was the place to go, it was where the streetcars intersected, it was where everyone went to shop and transact business. And I think watching these futures become political projects and then watching people compete to define them, to negotiate them, that's where the analysis really gets interesting. Was Toronto unique in this regard? Uh, how did it compare, for example, with what was happening in other big cities in Canada? I'm thinking in particular about Montreal, which was led by Jean Drapeau at this time. You mentioned at the very beginning the impact of the Place Ville-Marie, that iconic building uh, in downtown Montreal. Was Toronto that different from other cities in Canada? Montreal is a fascinating example, I think, that highlights both the, the similarities and the differences between cities of roughly similar sizes as they were at that time. And Jean Drapeau is, is famous for creating this sort of centralized mayoral system in which he was able to pursue these big ticket projects. So so the Metro, Expo 67, the Olympics, uh, Place Ville-Marie, which was viewed as a, a groundbreaking uh, redevelopment in the center of the city uh, when it was proposed. Don't forget the Expos. Yeah, and the Expos, although that didn't turn out as well. And the Olympics. I mean, it's all part of the same package, isn't it? I mean, you have a governing vision. Agree or disagree with Drapeau, uh, council was with him. There was a certain vision of Montreal going forward. We don't have that in Toronto, do we? No, no. Uh, and, and one element of explanation is that there's a very different political system. So you have frequent elections. You don't have strong political parties. You hardly have parties at all at the municipal level. You have a mayor who's really just a, a conciliator and a negotiator. Like his job is to assemble a consensus around whatever policy he's, he or she is trying to put forward. And, and that proves very difficult, as we, as we still see to this day. Something I, I highlight in the book, though, is that cities across North America were thinking through what they saw as the same set of downtown problems in this period. And, and each of them had their own configuration of actors and, and, and built landscape and, and questions, but, but they share this concern for central shopping areas and entertainment areas as the city grew, as it sprawled, as uh, alternatives appeared in the suburbs. And they often diagnosed ill health, decline, or rot in the center of the city. So there's an anxiety about public space and how it's used. And, and above all, there's an interest in large-scale interventionist solutions for downtown. I mean, Liz, again, reading your book, I'm struck at how Toronto succeeded. I mean, it may not be Montreal in terms of vision, but in terms of execution, in terms of actually fulfilling a view, when you compare it to the cities that border Ontario, I'm thinking, I'm sorry, I'm going to pick on Buffalo, uh, which is, you know, uh, something we Torontonians like to do. But you pick on Buffalo, or you pick on Detroit, the two big cities that are abutting Ontario. My goodness, Toronto over the last 50 years is a remarkable success, is it not? I mean, surely we, if we compare, if we compare with, with what happened in the United States, there is something about Toronto's vision that still carried something. How do you react to that? Yeah, there there are stark differences, and, and whereas Buffalo might have been seen as an example to follow around the turn of the 20th century, by the time you get to this period following the Second World War, it comes up most of all in debates over downtown as a counterexample, so a warning. If we, if we get this wrong, if we make the wrong decisions now, Toronto's downtown is going to end up like Buffalo, and, and, and the same goes for Detroit. Of course, we're dealing with very different contexts in which these cities are growing and changing. And there's major economic and political reasons why Toronto did not go down the same path as Buffalo. So it, massive demographic, demographic growth, the emergence of sort of the command and control center for, for Canada's economy and notably financial services in the, around Bay Street and just south of the, the area discussed in my book. Uh, 
Uh, we have unity for tax purposes and governments uh, across the metropolitan area, so you don't have separatist suburbs that take their tax revenues and, and build their own infrastructure and ignore the center of the city. And, and you don't have this, this massive racial inequality, which is caused by white flight and by the inability uh, in the United States context of African Americans to leave central areas of the city. For all the competing visions that are at war in Toronto, there is still a central concern for the health of the core, isn't there? Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's vital. And, and it seems as though the elite of the city, business, community, politic, political, are still quite concerned about making sure that the, the, the city is not, the, the core of the city isn't vacated, as you say. And that makes for a very interesting politics. Now, you focus on the saga of the Eaton Center, and I have to say, I mean, I learned so many things in this book. Uh, I was surprised to hear how old this initial, this, this, this project was. Um, and I was surprised to hear about how, how massive and transformative uh, the project started. When did it start and what was the guiding spirit? So the Eaton Center, as we might know it today, the first phase wasn't built until the 1970s, and it was completed over the next few years. But the project was already being discussed seriously in the 1950s, so from the mid-1950s in Toronto. And there's a couple of factors that lead to it taking shape. First, uh, well, today we are in an era where Eaton's doesn't exist anymore and where the big department store giants are gone. Uh, in the 1950s, they were major players downtown, both as uh, employers, as retailers, but also as landowners. And I think that's particularly the case with Eaton's, which owns a huge swathe of property on Young Street and in the surrounding area. So there's that context. So Eaton's is a big downtown power broker, and it's trying to pivot to the suburbs because it's understanding that there's changes going on in the shape of the city and they're thinking how can we consolidate our position downtown while uh, freeing up capital, freeing up uh, business to move to the suburbs. Second, we have a municipal administration that is hell-bent, I think we could say, on augmenting uh, tax revenue, um, on building uh, new, taller constructions, both for the prestige and to, to encourage new activities moving downtown, but also because they need the money, because they're building infrastructure. Uh, Toronto's building expressways. Toronto's building a subway. At this point, there's a real need for uh, revenues to pay for the massive expansion of city budgets. And the final factor, which I point to in the book, which, which leads to this massive project being proposed, is an incredible and almost hubristic faith in modern construction techniques and in modern planning as a solution for virtually any urban problem and as the path to transforming downtown. And Toronto's not unique in thinking that the sky was the limit for rebuilding and that skyscrapers and plazas and expressways were the way to keep downtown connected and competitive. Again, this is the 1950s. We're not talking about the project of the 1970s. We're talking about the first, the initial notion of an Eaton Center. And the idea here was to sort of bring unity to all these properties that Eaton's had downtown. It's really quite remarkable. Uh, all these properties spread out, and, and there are pictures in your book. I mean, all these ugly parking lots, and, 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 there, and but there, there are streets, there are still streets that have gone, that are disappeared now, they've all disappeared. But we're talking about the project that was created in the 1950s, and it fails. Why did it fail? It was a grand vision, and it failed. Well, about a year after the first plans, the first official plans for the Eaton Center are presented, so now we're talking about 1966, a year later in 1967, the project is cancelled, and, and it was front page news, most of all, because it was so unexpected. This seemed like a fait accompli. This was going to be Place Ville-Marie, but in Toronto. This was going to be the project that sparked 
uh, the modernization of downtown. There's a couple reasons that I put forward in the book. Eaton's explanation was um, that their plan hinged on demolishing a building, Old City Hall, which was the Victorian pile of bricks that was previously used by the municipal administration, a lovely old building. Still today, a gorgeous building. Currently used as, as courts, um, which had been replaced a few years earlier with a more modern version. And according to Edens, who was planning this big civic center development called the Eden Center, the profitability of the project depended on demolishing Old City Hall, replacing it with an office tower. And so in explaining its decision, um, and this was obviously something that raised the ire of a lot of citizen groups in Toronto, we really see a lot of uh, urbanists and, and community actors who who target Eaton's as uh, corporate greed personified, as as evidence of the sort of destructive tendency of downtown development. We're, we're destroying our past. We How can we create a future without thinking about the, the longer term context? And in explaining its decision, Eaton's basically said it's the fault of the small-minded people of Toronto and the politicians they've elected to represent them. However, in the book, I do point to two other factors which weren't mentioned by Eaton's, which I think are equally important. The first was that the project was fundamentally financially unviable in the 1960s, the way it was proposed. It was too big. It was too grandiose to happen without a major private or public investment uh, backing Eaton's. And Eaton shopped it to any number of major private investors, from the Rockefellers to the Kuwaitis, and everyone said the same thing. They said, it's too big, it's too complex, it will be too much of a headache, and it's not going to be profitable for years. You have to go back to the, the planning table. And second, Eaton's had the ambition, but uh, was ultimately, I argue, unable to reconcile this new role as a property developer with its main role, its traditional role as a retailer who relies on goodwill and pleasing the population who shops at its store, with being a developer, which necessarily means uh, butting up against opposition, even uh, moving past that opposition, negotiating with critics. They were unable to do this stuff. And that froze the project, and Eaton's decided, we're going to back off from this. We do not have a future as a land developer. We're going to partner with someone who can first idea of the Eaton Center fails. You bring in the story of this pedestrian mall, uh, and and the pedestrian mall experiment will last like three summers, three summers before it abruptly is ended in 1974. It seems as though people kind of like the idea of having a street, a pedestrian street, did that give more legitimacy to the idea of a of a of an indoor pedestrian mall of a big mall? Did that give new life to the Eaton Center idea? Uh, great question. The the first part, I mean, pedestrian malls are fascinating, and Toronto wasn't the only city to to implement one. Most North American cities tried it in the 1960s and and 70s with varying levels of success. But it's a fascinating idea because people really get behind it. And it turns out to be quite a flexible idea that sort of brings together a whole number of actors who felt left out of other plans for downtown. So actors who didn't have the power to be involved in real estate development, actors who were critical of corporate real estate development or of planning, um, who, who were interested in protecting the urban landscape, who were interested in public space as a path for uh, downtown progress. So the idea arrives in, in Toronto in the 50s. It's adopted by, by planners. It's published in the first plan for downtown. Uh, later, it gets picked up by 
small merchants who see it as a way of sort of protecting the sidewalk-oriented retail ecology that had been supporting them in the past, but was increasingly not really working for them. They'd been hammered by things like the construction of the Young Street subway, by uh, people preferring suburban alternatives, by all kinds of factors. It's also picked up by environmental activists, where at this moment where people, like the peak of the motor age, where people are really seizing on the car as representative of everything that's negative in the urban environment. There's the, the question of pollution uh, and the new environmental consciousness of the period. So we have this really fascinating um, uh, coalition of, of unexpected allies, I guess, who get behind the project. And so it's a grassroots-oriented project, but it's also a project that people appropriate and, and use in their own ways. And I spend a great deal of time in the book talking about sort of the day-to-day -day uses and, and ecology of this as a public space. So the, the, the youth who are there for summer employment or just passing through Toronto, uh, the, the street cafe culture, it's the first time that there are outdoor cafes in what is quite a, a straight-laced uh, Protestant city, um, a site for political expression, for proselytizing, um, a captive, pu captive public for advertising. And to answer the second part of your, your question, this absolutely influences the Eaton Center. The, the planners of the Eaton Center see this happening uh, the pedestrian mall invigorates politically a whole number of actors, including uh, urbanists, uh, environmental activists, who later get involved in the planning of the Eaton Center. And we see ideas like the, the appetite for public space and for amenities being incorporated into a redesign of the Eaton Center, which eventually gave us this sort of uh, composite design, which we, which we have today. Which is a street, but a street that is protected from the weather. It's a street that can be walked in air conditioning in the summer and with heating in the winter. Did the Eaton Center, as it was reconceived and built, was that Eaton Center an anti-Young Street accomplishment or was it a pro-Young Street accomplishment? A lot of people saw it as one or the other. So it's, it's, it's planners promoted it as the project that was going to save Young Street. So it's a revitalization project. We're going to resurrect the street. We're going to bring new life downtown, new prosperity, uh, notably by allowing middle-class consumers to safely shop downtown again. But then you have critics. You have a lot of critics who say, in fact, what's going to happen is the opposite. When you put a mall on the west side of Young Street, along four blocks of the Strip, you're going to suck the traffic off the Strip. You're going to lure everyone inside this building, and they're not going to come out. And in fact, direct entrances to the subway would facilitate that. What I find in my book is that the answer is somewhere between the two. So in fact, the project brought enormous numbers of people downtown, and that spilled out onto the Strip. And what you see is that the the commercial world that's being organized in the Eaton Center and the one that exists on Young Street, with some adjustments, can cohabitate. Obviously, the greatest success, the greatest profits are in the center, but there's a whole number of actors that survive, and notably we're talking about entertainment, youth, uh, culture, record stores, things like that, that don't necessarily fit with the Eaton Center, that work really well on the Strip. And so, whereas a lot of people were saying, this mall is going to kill Young Street, uh, in fact, business owners on the Strip were pleasantly surprised in the years following its opening by how many people were on the sidewalks again. Forty years later, Daniel, do you think the Eaton Center is a success? 
Well, that depends on the perspective we adopt. <laughs> Do I get to success? I'm asking you. I mean, you were born when this thing was created. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite born. Do you, I mean, uh, from your eyes, because you were born and raised in Toronto, you studied in Toronto, do you consider the Eden Centre a success? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a success. I think we have to, however, look at who it's a success for. So Fair enough. It wasn't a success for Eaton's because it didn't deliver what they wanted in the long term, which was to consolidate their downtown presence and sort of maintain the department store model in the face of increased competition. That didn't work. It lasted about 20 years. Eaton's went bankrupt. They couldn't compete. It was very much a success for its builder. So I trace how Cadillac Fairview, which is one of the largest real estate developers in North America, really banks on this idea of the urban shopping mall and makes it a cornerstone of its success as a developer, as a manager. Um, it, it really skyrockets to, to the front, uh, to the leading edge of development in uh, downtowns in North America because of the project. It's probably also a success for people in Toronto. They embrace it. They love it as a gathering place, as a shopping space. There are limits, however, because the private street is uh, subject to a regime of private enforcement. The private street does not allow political expression, although there are some interesting debates over union organizing at Eaton's. Uh, the private street also has some rules about who can access it. And while it is very interested in middle-class shoppers and families, it's not so interested in youth. It's not so interested in other undesirable populations. And the power to exclude based on private property is much more robust than what you would see on a public street. So you have economic success and success for a number of actors who are invested in the mall, including pension funds, so many of us indirectly. But uh, you also have a loss, a certain element of control that's injected, uh, which isn't present on uh, warts and all the downtown street as it exists outside the Eaton Center. Reading your book, I'm fascinated by how you see this development, for, again, the private sector development that will parallel Young Street, uh, a drive to attract, as you say, the middle class shopper, to bring the middle class shopper from the suburbs uh, to experience downtown. There's a lot of development happening downtown. You've said it already. The, the bankers, I mean, the bankers are setting up giant shops, all new buildings, Scotia Bank, CIBC, Bank of Montreal. They're all pouring. They're all pouring their workers next door to the Eaton Center. And at the same time, through the late 60s and 1970s, you describe a Young Street, another side of Young Street, that is growing seedier and more violent and, and more ugly. Um, something else was happening, and it took the murder of a young shoeshine boy, a young fellow called Emmanuel Jacques, in the summer of 1977, for the community to wake up. Well, what happened in the summer of 1977? So the summer of 1977 is uh, in many ways a, a landmark moment in Toronto history, most of all in the collective memory of a number of Toronto communities, Portuguese Canadians. Uh, but more broadly, the city was riveted on this tragic murder of a 12-year-old boy who worked uh, doing shoe shines on Young Street. And that murder became, in the summer of 1977, indelibly associated with the rise of sexual entertainment on Young Street. Um, there were links between the crime and men who worked at a body rub parlor on the street. In the book, I put it in a broader context of the, the emergence of Young Street, this downtown stretch, as what I call Toronto's post-war sex district. So because of changes in the law, because of changes in consumer behavior, because of the availability of relatively inexpensive rental properties on the Strip, uh, this area becomes the place where body rub parlors, sex shops, 
peep shows and, and various other uh, sexual entertainment venues open. And this provokes a strong response from the early 1970s onward, when people really discover this change on Young Street, um, a strong citizen response. And I track how citizens uh, tried to put pressure on the new mayor from 1972, on, on Mayor David Crombie, who's elected that year, on a platform of citizen participation in local government. And so he has this, this massive mobilization, thousands of letters, petitions, and how both Metro and the City of Toronto work to try and find strategies to limit or to contain or to regulate the sexual entertainment industry. And a lot of those were blind alleys. Some of them worked. Uh, notably this licensing system, which still sort of exists in another form uh, today, licensing for uh, uh, body rub parlors. But the moment of 1977 is really important because this murder, which was associated very strongly by critics of the, of the sex industry with the strip, gives a powerful uh, justification to what becomes a crackdown on the sex industry. So you, you have a massive deployment of police resources. You have the province dedicating a court and a special prosecutor to following up on criminal cases. You have all kinds of inspections and harassment of sex-oriented businesses. And, and the result is, while a lot of these cases don't stick, it's very hard to regulate sex and sex work at this time, um, the immense public disapproval, the, the, the outrage at this crime effectively leads to the end of this post-war sex district, which finally lasts about seven or eight years on Young Street. It's a remarkable moment and really, um, I think for, for historians, uh, a demonstration of how one particular event, one particular revelation can really turn things around. But as you point out in your book, um, this reform movement had been growing through the late 60s, 1970s. You mentioned David Crombie. David Crombie has to be reelected every two years. I mean, in those days, the, and it comes back to the point you made earlier about governance. It's very difficult in Toronto until, the, I mean, at that time, to really get city council to work in a particular direction because the, the, the mayor would change, the council would change. It took a while to clean up Young Street, didn't it? That's also because there were significant uh, rights issues. I mean, a lot of the things that were happening on Young Street weren't illegal. Although they were, there was a lot of disapproval towards them, and uh, and we're we're at a time where there's significant backlash against all kinds of things that are that are legal. I mean, the decriminalization of of homosexuality. There's a lot of backlash against that. Uh, the legalization of abortion. We're talking about a moment when when there's a lot of change happening, and many of the actors that I describe uh, mobilizing against sin strip see this as a moment of decline. So, and, and that's a classic element of projects of moral regulation. I mean, the idea that not only is this something that we disapprove of, that is not acceptable, but it's linked to larger problems, larger questions. And again, we might be going in the direction of Buffalo. We might be going in the direction of Detroit. Having a body rub parlor on the main street of Toronto is a sign that there's something significantly wrong in the body politic. As you mentioned, the reform movement is happening, or what was at the time called the municipal reform movement. So you see a significant change in who is running for election, particularly in central Toronto. And you also see some really interesting alliances between, for example, on the Sin Strip issue, downtown progressives, so people who are viewed as progressives on a lot of issues, but believe that Young Street's future cannot include a sexual entertainment district. And then these more brash, populist, suburban politicians like Mel Lastman, 
for example, who are starting to see uh, body rub parlors popping up in their districts and also are seeing it as a way that they can mobilize electors when uh, election time comes and sort of present themselves as the voice of the people. And the Toronto Sun is founded around this time. It's a it's a sort of a rebirth of the Telegram, which which ended a, a year or two earlier. And and the Toronto Sun seizes on this idea of sin strip as a way of connecting to the people, as a way of with these lurid exposés of sin strip and the terrible direction that the city's going in, capturing a public that wasn't being served by the other newspapers. I, I have to say again, your book is revealing to me on that. I didn't realize the Toronto Sun had used this as a as a hobby horse, the Toronto Sun that would feature, you know, pictures of women on page three. It's kind of ironic that they would go after Sin Strip. Anyway, I'm just... Some of the most critical issues of the Toronto Sun about the sex industry featured advertisements by uh, various sex-oriented shops in the back of the, the newspaper. It's amazing how, again, you, you depict a city that is being debated, uh, activists of all sorts, left and right, people against Sin street you also have developers and i want to come to that in a second but at the end of the day i'm still struck at how weak the city is in expressing a vision for the city how weak toronto municipal councillors are the 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 aldermen as we used to call them um we we see i mean your pick your book has lots of pictures of parking lots in downtown toronto like what was what was going on i mean am i i mean am i wrong in in in, in identifying this lack of vision among city fathers because they were all fathers in those days am i wrong or was there something right about the city government's vision of itself or of its jurisdiction to address your point about parking lots we are at peak parking lot in downtown toronto at this point the early 1970s and it's not just because there's tons of cars coming into the downtown every every year but it's also because it's a good way to use real estate when you demolished a building you use the lot as a parking lot you pay less taxes and you're sort of in the expectation that in the future it will be redeveloped and that's what we've seen over the last 40 or 50 years, but it's it's it makes you despair to look at an aerial shot of downtown Toronto at this point, or or most North American cities undergoing this kind of change. Peak parking lot. <laughs> That's a new concept. <laughs> okay. yep, but that explains the ugliness. That explains the ugliness of many parts of the city in those days. Yep, it's uh, it's key. Uh, it's a key feature, and and I think I have some statistics in the book, but but something like like 15% of of downtown is is parking lots, and this is some of the most valuable, potentially valuable land in the country. Um, well, in terms of in terms of vision, I think actually with with the municipal reform movement, you see people coming into government with a vision, except their vision is a community control, participatory democracy oriented vision. So what they want to do. Uh, is sort of flip the script. Um, they have sort of this this bogeyman of municipal government who'd, who'd never been listening to citizens and who'd been just uh, been in bed with big business. It's not necessarily the case. Citizens have always been a big part of municipal government in Toronto. But they really want to flip things and, and they want to disperse uh, the instances of local government around the city. They want communities to be active in, uh, in deciding the f their future. And this effectively creates a system where small, well-organized groups of citizen activists have an enormous say in the future of the city. So it's a bit of a, a double-edged sword. You have more people participating in the process, but you also have a process that, where it's increasingly hard to enact grand visions. I mean, Jean Drapeau 
the way he got things done was not listening to citizens. <laughs> yes, the Robert Moses of his day. Yeah, 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 very much so. It's interesting, um, and I like your emphasis on, on community voices, and I discovered in your book that uh, Jane Jacobs liked the Eaton Centre. Uh, something that I would not have expected, but I, and I should have known, but I, I learned in your book. Now, let's okay, so we've talked about the community. I'm still struck here by the vitality of the business community, particularly the developers, and how they play an important part in your history of Young Street. How do you describe the arc, the arc, if I can call it that, of the involvement of the business community? Is it steady as she goes, or does it have peaks and valleys? How do you describe in, in your period of the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, what, what, what is the business community? Yeah, well, definitely we're talking about uh, a trajectory that has peaks and valleys because we're talking about people who are, in essence, responding to dynamic land markets, to changes in interest rates, to all sort of all kinds of like macro level economic changes as well as as micro ones which determine their business decisions so it's a bit chaotic it's sporadic but developers have an enormous impact on this section of the city and on downtown more generally i think you could talk about a period from the 1940s through to the early 60s where there's much less interest in investing in downtown real estate where there's a bit of hesitation because there's there's so much going on on the urban fringe the place to invest money, if you had it to put into real estate, was in suburban land development. There's so many fewer headaches. You don't have to demolish anything. You're essentially converting green fields into housing developments, and it's very profitable if you have the capital. Downtown development, however, starts becoming really interesting in the 1960s from a, a financial uh, perspective, from a profit-oriented perspective, because there's a lot of interest in prestige offices, so that's where we start getting bank towers. There's tons of uh, investors, whether it's pension funds, which I mentioned, or large corporations, which want to pour their money into what is perceived as a very secure investment uh, at a moment when there's a lot of volatility in, in other areas of the economy. So you have all kinds of changes happening so that by the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, Toronto was experiencing each year sort of a record real estate year, and it's visible. Those parking lots that you mentioned are being converted into towers. Uh, sh the shopscape on Young Street is being torn down at an increasing rate. The Eaton Center is just the most dramatic of a whole series of projects. Modernization comes, and it, it doesn't necessarily come in the forms that the civic boosters of the 40s and 50s who were desperate to get civic a civic center and, and, and redevelopment happen. It doesn't necessarily take the form that they imagined, but it happens. And uh, we're still dealing with uh, the impacts of volatile land markets, of massive uh, fixing of capital in the urban landscape today. I mean, Toronto continues to change. The big difference, reading your book, is that where Eaton's tried to do it on its own in the 50s and 60s and failed, it worked in the 70s because it finally uh, became a partner to the developers that were interested in making Toronto something that it was not before. And the big winner, tell me I'm wrong, was Cadillac Fairview. Yeah. Definitely. Cadillac Fairview, the big the big development. But Young Street brought to you by Cadillac Fairview. Is, is <laughs> that fair to, is that fair to say? Yeah, and more and more broadly, Canadian downtowns brought to you by the vertically and horizontally integrated development corporation. So <laughs> Cadillac Fairview didn't just build the Eaton Center, it manages it. It it has a great hand in, in determining who's who the tenants are, and it takes, or at least uh, in the period I'm describing, it operated by taking a, a percentage of the rents or the, the sales of, of its tenants. So 
a whole model based on uh, owning, developing, and maximizing the profit of urban land, which is which is really developed during this period. And the Eden Center for me is a, is a landmark development in that in that perspective. I, I couldn't I couldn't disagree. Is Young Street better fifty years later than it was fifty years ago? I'm I'm thankful that my book doesn't have to answer that, that question. I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it to people who oh, were there. Oh, you're chickening out. You're chickening out. <laughs> is it better? I mean, it's Young Street is an iconic, an iconic piece of property in this country. Everybody knows Young Street, and I, 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 I again, I, I asked myself the question. I didn't have an answer either. Was Young Street? I, you see bits and pieces of Young Street of old today. Uh, and you don't have to go very far north of the area that you talk about. You talk about the area between, uh, I'd say, King Street, right? Front Street, King Street to College. There are parts north of College that are now transformed, but you can still see vestiges of the old Young Street. And I have to say, it's not very impressive. Um, but I wonder, reading your book, are we better off 50 years later? I guess historians always ask that question, don't we? I mean, are we better off now than we were 50 years ago? And you're not going to answer, and that's okay. We'll let the readers determine that on their own. I'll give you, I'll I, give you an element of an answer. I think, I, I, and but it's, it's really me avoiding an answer, like a good historian. <laughs> <laughs> um, historians always say it's more complicated. But uh, <laughs> basically, 50 years on, a defining feature of the street is change. And we may have been very attached to Young Street 50 years ago. Many, many people were. But that Young Street also represented transformation for people who were familiar with an early version of the street. And it's something I really try and emphasize in the book is that streets don't stop changing. And whereas we might seize on an aspect of it as iconic, um, as representative of the street as it was or should be, the natural state of the urban landscape, particularly in a successful city like Toronto, is change. And where it gets interesting is seeing who has a voice in that change. What kind of power structures and relationships are involved in that change? And where are the moments where people with more or less power are able to influence the process? But surely you'll agree with me that we all have the right to mourn the passing of Sam the Record Man. Yes, and, and we have extensively. <laughs> I come to my last question, Daniel, the classic Champlain Society question. Tell me about the sources you used for this book. Well, one of the great advantages, but also the challenges of studying this period, is the abundance of sources. So I was able to work with and, and bring into dialogue a whole series of archives. I, I worked a lot with municipal documents, so dozens of reports, uh, memorandum, city council meetings, correspondence all about Young Street. Um, I was I worked a lot with the mayor's papers, so the papers of successive mayors from the 50s through to the 70s. I used newspapers both uh, for reporting, facts on the ground, photos, but also uh, for their role shaping and framing public opinion. This is a moment when people were reading newspapers. About two-thirds of people in the metro Toronto area took a newspaper every day. I used the Eaton's archive, so this is one of the rare instances of a, a major private corporation which is left behind an extensive archive, and that lets me get it real estate development from what I would say is an unusual perspective. We've often studied it as a planning issue. We've studied people opposed to development, but we rarely get the perspective of the developers or their partners, and Eaton's was both of those in the period I study. And finally, I'm very interested in citizen voices, and, and one uh, source that I use quite a bit in the book are letters by citizens to their elected officials. So I have thousands of letters to David Crombie and to other uh, representatives that I analyze, and, and I try and take those voices seriously. What did people think about Young Street, whether they used it every day or just read about it in the paper? And how did they try and influence its future by writing a letter? 
Well, it makes for a great book. And thank you very much, Daniel Ross, for sharing your ideas and insights with me today. Thank you, Patrice. It's been a pleasure. Speaking with Daniel Ross about his book, The Heart of Toronto, Corporate Power, Civic Activism, and the Remaking of Downtown Young Street. It's published by the University of British Columbia Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded on April 4th when hopes are up that the pandemic is ending. Well, we're not sure. Jessica Schmidt is our producer, as always. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Music